Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here today. So when I was a young boy, 9, 10, 11 years old, I was constantly trying to come up with new money-making ideas, schemes, as my mom would say. Now, I did the typical things kids do, lemonade stand, mowing my neighbor's lawn, paper route, but I always had my sights set on something bigger. I just didn't know what it was. Until one day, when reading a Spider-Man comic book, I found it in the form of a full-page color advertisement for the American Seed Company. Maybe some of you recognize it. Well, there across the top of the page were pictures of kids, just like me, giving glowing testimonials about how they had found their fortunes selling packets of vegetable and flower seeds. William from Missouri said, I sell them as fast as I can show them. And Desmond from New York, who sold 230 packs in one hour and a half. Not only could you earn cash, but also fabulous prizes. A chemistry set, a telescope, even a bicycle. Of course, at the time, I had no idea that you would have to sell 2,000 packets of seeds to get a bicycle, but it didn't matter. I filled out the order form and put it in the mail, confident that untold riches would soon be mine. Well, a couple of weeks later, my box of seed packets arrived. A few too many Brussels sprouts for my liking, but undaunted, I immediately began my selling spree. Family, friends, neighbors, distant relatives, casual acquaintances, Sunday school teachers, no one was safe from my sales pitch. And in the end, I did manage to sell every packet of seed to a whopping profit of $6.25. I know, I should have stuck to the lemonade stand. There's always money in the lemonade stand. But here's the thing that I remember most about that experience. Nearly everyone I approached had the same question, and it was this. Will these seeds grow? Will these seeds grow? And I would point to the ad and say, well, yes, it says so right here, guaranteed to grow. But was that a promise the American Seed Company really could make? Because regardless of how superior their product was, or even how knowledgeable the person doing the planting was, if those seeds were placed into an environment that hindered their growth, let's use an extreme example and say the blacktop of the church parking lot, well, no amount of tending or watering was going to produce a crop. In order for seeds to grow, they need good soil. And that's the theme of our parable today. It's often referred to as the parable of the sower, but perhaps a better title would be the parable of the soils. Because in answering the question, will these seeds grow, at least in this parable, it isn't so much the sower or even the seeds themselves that determine whether they'll sprout and flourish, but rather the type of soil they're planted into. You see, the parable of the sower is really all about the soil. We pray with me for a moment as we ask God's blessing on our time together. Lord, give us ears to listen and to hear your word this morning, that we might grow and persevere, bearing fruit in ways we never thought possible. Help us to carry on with grace and courage and hope. Amen. So the parable of the sower is found in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Today we'll be looking at Mark's account in chapter 4. Now, in the first three chapters of Mark, we see Jesus beginning his ministry being baptized by John, naming the 12 disciples, casting out demons, healing the sick, teaching and preaching, and attracting large crowds. But not everyone is happy with Jesus. 
the, parab- the, excuse me, the Pharisees are already plotting to kill him. And even his own family seem to have turned against him, fearing that he's lost his mind. It's against this backdrop that chapter 4 begins. Jesus is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, once again surrounded by a multitude of people. The crowd is so large that he climbs into a boat and takes it just offshore. And it's from this floating pulpit that Jesus tells them the parable of the sower. Now, it's probably a parable many of you are familiar with, even the uh, spiritual application of it. But this morning, I want you to try to forget everything you know. To imagine yourself standing with that crowd that day, hearing this parable for the very first time. What would you make of it? Starting in verse 3, Jesus says, Listen, notice the exclamation mark. Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up producing fruit that increased 30, 60, and a hundred times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Well, this image of a farmer walking through his field, reaching into a pack or a pouch slung over his shoulder, pulling out a handful of seed to scatter it as evenly as he could across the soil, this would have been something very familiar to the people listening. After all, they lived in what was by and large an agricultural society. In fact, for many of them, they may have dealt with some of the very same soil conditions while tending their own fields. In the parable, we see four different types of soil. The first is the well-traveled soil found along the wayside or outer edges of a field. These were footpaths beaten down by heavy travel until the ground became as hard as concrete. If the farmer threw a seed a bit too far and it landed there, it would be impossible for it to penetrate into the dirt it would either get trampled underfoot or eaten by birds. Next is the rocky or stony soil, something farmers in first century Palestine would have been well acquainted with. You see, often there was a shallow layer of topsoil that would hide a layer of limestone underneath. This kind of soil would be extremely frustrating to the unaware farmer because at first his crop would appear to be healthy, but this underlying rock would prevent the roots from going deep. And when the hot sun beat down on the plants, they would wither and die. The third soil is the thorny or weed-filled soil. Any of you that are home gardeners have certainly dealt with that. It seems that weeds often grow way faster than the things we've actually planted. And left unattended, they choke out the good plants before they ever get a chance to mature. Well, here we are, three soils in, and things are looking pretty discouraging for the sower. But then there's a fourth kind of soil, what Jesus calls the good ground, or fertile soil. In this soil, not only is a crop produced, but one that yields 30, 60, even 100 times the original investment. So if you were standing on the shore that day, what would you have taken away from this? Would you have said, I get it, Jesus. A farmer plants some seeds. Some of it grows, some of it doesn't. The end. Great story, Jesus. And you know, a lot of people there that day, perhaps the majority of people there listening, walked away thinking something similar. They heard his words, 
but not the truth behind his words. Notice how Jesus begins and ends this parable with the admonition to listen. In fact, the words listen or hear are used eight times in this brief passage. Jesus ends the parable by saying, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Well, think of the Pharisees who saw Jesus' miracles. They heard his teaching, but ultimately missed it all. Instead of listening, they plotted to kill him. So Jesus makes a point to tell everyone there to pay attention, to take heed, to seek understanding. And after the crowds have dispersed, the disciples and a number of other followers do exactly that. They didn't understand the parable, but wanted to know more. So they asked Jesus to explain it. And Jesus did, giving them the, the key to this simple yet profound parable. Now, if you're following along in your Bibles, we're going to skip over the next few verses where Jesus explains why he teaches in parables. Last week, Pastor Gary gave a message on that, so if you did miss it, go over to the church website and check it out. We're going to jump right into Jesus' explanation, starting in verse 14. Jesus said, The sower sows the word. Imagine the disciples as a light bulb goes off in their brain. The sower doesn't sow seeds. He sows the word. Some people are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And others are like seeds sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seeds sown among thorns or weeds. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But those like seeds sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. So what is the key to this parable? Well, first, the seed mentioned in the parable represents the word of God, the good news, the gospel, the message of the kingdom. The identity of the sower isn't expressly given. We could take it to mean God or Jesus, but also any of us who share and proclaim the gospel message. And finally, the main theme of the parable, the soils, which are a picture of the various conditions found in the human heart and the ability of each one of them to receive the word of God. This explains how different people can hear the very same gospel message and walk away from it in different ways, some unchanged, some totally transformed. So now that we have the key to this parable, let's look at the four soils again, but now is the four heart types that they represent. The first soil, the soil found on the path, represents a hard heart. These are individuals whose hearts are so closed and hardened that the seeds of the gospel message never penetrate, let alone take root. A hard heart can come from any number of places. Perhaps it's someone who's angry at God. They ask the question, if God really exists, how can he allow all these terrible things to happen? Maybe it's a heart where bitterness or brokenness has caused it to become calloused. Maybe it's a skeptic's heart. The seed gets sown, but like a rock bouncing off the surface of a frozen pond, it has no effect. And Satan is there, ready to steal it away.
The second soil, the rocky soil, represents a shallow or superficial heart. Here the person's reaction to the gospel is the polar opposite to someone with a hard heart. The gospel message gets received immediately and with joy, but it's only superficial. There's an emotional reaction, but not a deeply rooted heartfelt belief. It may appear an abundant harvest is on the way, but it doesn't last. When following Jesus becomes too difficult, they wither and fall away. Persecution isn't making them lose their faith. It's revealing a faith they never truly had. The third soil, the thorny or weed-filled soil, represents a crowded or cluttered heart. This heart is filled with so many other things that there's no room for the word of God to take hold, let alone produce fruit. Jesus actually named some of the things that will choke out his word. The worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, which is pretty open-ended, fill in the blank. And the reason why these things are deceitful is because they never deliver on what they promise. The voice of God gets drowned out, being just one of many competing voices. This is actually a pretty accurate picture of our current culture. Super busy lives, an obsession to earn and have more and more, the sheer volume of media and every other distraction right at our fingertips. There's no room in this heart for the gospel message. It gets squeezed out by everything else. All three of the soils we've just mentioned have one thing in common. They bear no fruit. The good news of the gospel has no lasting effect in that person's life. But now the fourth soil, the good and fertile soil, representing an open and willing heart. With that, everything changes. These are the ones who actually listen and hear the word of God, accepting it with joy. Those with soft souls, open minds, repentant hearts, they believe the word of God is true, that it's life-giving, life-changing, and transformative. They hear the good news and it resonates, wriggling its way into their hearts, digging in with deep roots. And where there was once a dry and barren field, it's now overrun with a crop, growing as far as the eye can see, bearing more fruit than humanly possible. And what is this fruit that is the mark of a true believer? Galatians 5 is a good place to start with the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In this parable, the harvest brought forth an abundance of grain. Tenfold would have been surprisingly good. Thirty or sixty, spectacular. But one hundredfold is literally miraculous. And with that abundance, we in turn get to scatter those same seeds of the gospel message to others. What is the gospel or the good news? Pastor John Piper summarizes it into this one sentence. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. Theologian Frederick Buechner describes the good news this way. What is both good and new about the good news 
is the wild claim that Jesus did not simply tell us God loves us even in our wickedness and folly, and that he wants us to love each other in the same way and to love God too, but that if we allow it to happen, God will actually bring about this unprecedented transformation in our hearts himself. What is both good and new about the good news is the mad insistence that Jesus lives on among us, not just as another haunting memory, but as the outlandish, holy, and invisible power of God, working in countless hidden ways to make even slobs like us loving and whole beyond anything we could conceivably pull off by ourselves. If you are listening this morning, having heard the message of the gospel, but never letting it penetrate into your heart and take root, please know this. There is no heart that is too hard or too crowded or too distracted or too shallow that God can't change it. He stands waiting, open-armed, with grace and forgiveness and a promise to make you brand new. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In the summer of 1978, I had just graduated from high school. I was attending Groton Heights Baptist Church and there was a special Wednesday night teen outreach event happening. It was led by an evangelist who also happened to be a professional drummer. The program consisted of him giving a drumming demonstration and then sharing gospel message. As I was leaving, I ran into someone I knew from school, a recent graduate named Charlie. He had seen a flyer for the event and decided to check it out. You see, Charlie was also a drummer in one of the more popular rock bands at my high school. I asked him what he had thought and he said, he liked the drumming demonstration, but all that talk afterwards about Jesus and God, well, that just wasn't for him. No thank you. Flash forward 13 years. It's 1991, and my wife and I have been coming to the chapel for just a short while. It's Sunday morning, and down in the front of the church is a small worship band playing, just an acoustic guitar, a bass, and some drums. And all at once, even though it's been over a decade, I recognize the drummer. It's Charlie. To this day, I remember the song he was playing, Do Lord. And after the service was over, I went to talk to him. He told me in detail how he had come to know the Lord. And then he said something that took me totally by surprise. He said, do you remember that drumming event you saw me at at your church? I told him I did. And he went on to share how that in the years that followed, he could never quite get the words of that evangelist out of his head. Even though at the time his heart was hard and that seed didn't penetrate, it did make a dent. And years later, when his heart was open, Charlie heard the gospel message again. The seed took root, it grew, and it flourished. Never doubt what God can do. There's a musician named Bill Maloney who's been a real blessing to me over the years. His songs have actually influenced a number of my sermons. Listen to what he has to say about this power of God. No mountain too high, there's no ocean too deep, no castle too strong, there's no lock that will keep. No river too wide, there's no desert too broad, no stone you can't break, no, no heart that's too hard, no heart that's too hard.
So moving on, what does this parable have to say to those of us who have already responded to the gospel message? For most of us here today, God's word did fall on good soil. We surrendered our lives to him with a willing heart. He saved us, and that salvation is absolutely secure. But I think this parable also points to a truth beyond just how we hear and receive the gospel for the very first time. That throughout our lives, there are times when our hearts can be any one of these soils to various degrees. I know mine have. So my question today for those of us who already know the Lord is this. What is the current condition of your heart? Has sorrow, suffering, misfortune, sadness, the loss of a loved one caused your heart to harden? Ask God to soften it. Have your spiritual roots become shallow? Has the excitement you once felt as a new believer waned with the passage of time? Then pray as King David did, that God would restore unto you the joy of his salvation. Is your heart fragile from trials or weary from persecution? Do you feel like one more crisis in your life could uproot you and send you spiraling? Plant yourself daily in God's word. Surround yourself with fellow believers because that's where you're going to find true encouragement. Are there weeds in your heart in need of pulling, a grudge you're still holding on to, a sin you can't seem to let go of, a relationship you need to mend? Maybe it's time to pull some weeds. Or are you overwhelmed by the worries of this age? Your finances, your marriage, your career, your health, debt, shame, guilt, fear of the future, fear of COVID, or any number of other things. The good news is you don't have to carry that another day. As we read in 1 Peter, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. May I be transparent with you all? This is one of the things that I struggle with the most. Anxiety, worry, fear. Five years ago, in many ways, it nearly ruled my life. All that changed with a phone call from Elise Paquette, asking if I would be willing to run media at our church's Celebrate Recovery meeting. For those of you not familiar with Celebrate Recovery, it's a Christian-based recovery program, not only for those struggling with drug or alcohol addiction, but for anyone with a hurt, a habit, or a hang-up. It could be anger, perfectionism, codependency, food-related issues, sexual addiction, you name it. In my case, it was anxiety. And as I sat there week after week in the sound booth, listening to teachings and testimonies, hearing the 12 steps and the eight principles of recovery, God began to speak to me. The first step in any 12-step program is this. We admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors and that our lives had become unmanageable. Once I admitted that anxiety was making my life unmanageable, I started down a road to healing. I've been part of CR for over four years now, and it has literally changed my life, not only giving me victory, but also an incredible support system of brothers and sisters who otherwise I may have never met. If you find yourself this morning struggling with one of these heart conditions, I would invite you to take a bold step and come visit us at Celebrate Recovery. We're here every Monday night at 6.30.
I hope to see some of you. Well, one final heart-related question. What are the things in your life that you have given priority to at the expense of your relationship with the Lord? Prayerfully ask God to reveal those things to you and help you to make changes. The Christian walk is a journey, step by step. Sometimes we wander from the path. Sometimes we get lost in the dark. Sometimes we fall down, but with God's help, we stand back up, we brush ourselves off, and start back down the path. Our hearts are in need of continual cultivation. That's how we ensure there is a good and fruitful soil there. So that we, in turn, sow the same seeds that have grown up in us, both by our words and by our deeds. When we started this morning, I put up this image of the sower. Perhaps some of you recognized it or could at least figure out who the artist is. The painting is titled, The Sower at Sunset. It's by Vincent van Gogh. And this motif of a sower in wheat fields is something commonly found in his work. But van Gogh lived a tragic life. He sold only one piece of artwork during his lifetime, even though now he's one of the most recognized painters in the world. He died at a young age, 37, from a gunshot wound, self-inflicted, ironically enough, as he sat in a wheat field. His final words were these, the sadness lasts forever. When I read that, it struck me as so sad and tragic that someone who brought so much beauty and light into this world would leave it uttering those words. When Jesus explained the parable of the sower to his disciples, he spoke of a mystery, the mystery of the kingdom. And part of that mystery was standing right there in front of them, that God had entered the world and was now relating to us in a completely different way. Jesus was God's entry into humanity. The seed in the parable represents the word, but Jesus is also the word, the word that became flesh to dwell among us. And not just to redeem us through his death and resurrection, but also to set all of creation right, to put in reverse the effects of sin and death that began in Eden, to one day return victoriously, creating a new heaven and a new earth where every tear of this life will be wiped away and death and pain and sorrow will be no more. That's the absolute opposite of a sadness that lasts forever. Author Tanya Marlowe describes it this way. Listen closely. Whenever I read the world's news about suffering, cruelty, injustice, and evil, I feel that pang within me, anticipating Christ's arrival when this broken world will be restored. When I feel the joy and beauty of creation, I think about the greater fulfillment that heaven must be. More beauty, more goodness, more. When I spot something of Christ's presence in my life, I think of how much greater it will be when I can see Christ face to face and look directly into the source of all love. Whenever I survey the mess we are making of the natural world, I think of the healing that will be done when Christ returns. Within us all is a little piece of heaven. God's spirit now rejoicing with us, now groaning with us as we yearn for more than this life can bring. That's why return 
is a good name for the idea of Christ coming to renew the world and make everything right. Because our souls remember a good and perfect world. Though we may be focused on the hustle and bustle of the here and now, deep down, we all long for a return to Eden and perhaps for a greater Eden yet to come. That's the promise found in God's word. This seed of truth and transformation that absolutely is guaranteed to grow in our hearts if we would only surrender. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? This prayer of David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Amen. Thanks for letting me share.